0: Welcome to SoundLore, the official podcast of Indiana University's Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, where we talk about recent scholarship, ideas, current happenings, and many other interesting tidbits. I'm Amanda Lu.
1: And I'm David McDonald. This week on SoundLore, we have with us the executive directors of both the Society for Ethnomusicology and the American Folklore Society. Dr. Jessica Turner received her PhD from Indiana University in Folklore and Ethnomusicology and is currently the Executive Director of the American Folklore Society. Along with her work at AFS, Dr. Turner's research centers around the exploration of creative expression, identity, and place, and the multifaceted dimensions of heritage and tourism. Throughout her career, Dr. Turner has worked to bridge academic and public folklore, ethnomusicology, museums, and heritage studies. Dr. Stephen Stemfley received his PhD in Folklore from the University of Pennsylvania and currently serves as the Executive Director of the Society for Ethnomusicology. In addition to his work with SEM, Dr. Stemfley teaches courses in IU's Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology and has authored The Steel Band Movement, The Forging of a National Art in Trinidad and Tobago, and Port of Spain, The Construction of a Caribbean City, 1888 to 1962. Thank you both for joining me today. Steve, how are you? I'm doing great, Dave. Thanks for the invitation to to be with you. Jessica's with us as well. Hi,
2: Dave. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having us today.
1: So this is one of the embarrassment of riches we have here at Indiana University and that both of these sibling societies are located, their business offices, right here in our department. So I have easy access to both the American Folklore Society and the Society for Ethnomusicology. And I played upon that relationship by bringing you both together to have a conversation about the future of academic societies under pandemic circumstances. Um, But what I'd first love to know is if you could talk me through the thought process that you and your boards um, went through when COVID first hit and it became apparent that the annual meetings of both of your societies would have to take a dramatic turn. Stephen, can you talk us through that moment? Yeah, sure. So uh, we were scheduled to be in Ottawa
0: canada for oct this past october october 2020 and we were really looking forward to going to ottawa because we hadn't been to canada i believe since 2000 uh, when there was a joint uh meeting of several uh, musicological societies so our local arrangements committee up in ottawa had lots of great things scheduled uh, we were really going to take advantage of, of being you know on site in canada Lots of musicians to interact with, museum tours, and so forth. So, uh, you know, uh, COVID became a uh, uh uh, you know, obviously a major challenge by March, and our thinking it began around then on, you know, what was going to be possible. If you all can think back to March, I know it's hard, but, you know, there was still some uncertainty in March, like maybe things will get better, you know, maybe this will, like, you know, pass through, and by the fall, it'll be uh, possible to hold annual meetings. Well, in the week following March, it became increasingly clear that an on-site meeting in Ottawa uh, was not going to happen, you know, it would not be safe, people wouldn't be able to get there, et cetera. So we, I should say that we work with part of IU, but it's a professional meeting planning Organization. So these are individuals who full-time help other organizations uh, produce uh, scholarly or other types of conferences. They do it both on the IU campus, but they do it anywhere in the U.S. and overseas as well. So we've been working with them for many years. So a lot of what happened involved me in communication with these full-time professional meeting planners, as well, of course, with the SEM board of directors so eventually we decided we would go all virtual um and there were a couple of considerations one was our normal meeting is three and a half days and there was a feeling as you know among the board which i totally agreed with that you know three and a half days of continuous online meeting would be you know uh just would lead to burnout online burnout for our uh, attendees so we ex- the first thing one of the first things we did was expand the meeting to over 10 days so the same number of sessions, we didn't cut back because we'd already received proposals for presentations. Our program committee had you know, basically already, so we didn't cut back on the number of presentations. We had you know, roughly 400 uh, in total, which is about normal for us. But what we did is we spread um, sessions out over this 10-day period. Uh, the second main thing we had to deal with was the software that was going to make all this happen. And uh, both Jessica and I belong, uh, are active within the American Council. Council of Learned Societies, where we're in ongoing communication with the other seventy-plus directors of societies. So, as you can imagine, last spring, much talk about uh, how to organize a virtual meeting. Much talk about the different software platforms. Some of the societies had to scramble and actually produce spring meetings and so forth. Anyways, we ended up uh, using a platform called WHOVA, W-H-O-V-A, which allows for all types of virtual interaction. It um, We use Zoom for the live program sessions. We all which you know was like a plug in to to Hoover we also um asked presenters if they wanted to to uh, send us pre recorded videos of their presentations in advance you know um uh, there are various reasons to do that. One to make them available before the meeting started. Second, to evolve, you know, to mitigate technical problems that might occur during the actual meeting. But um, the result was about half of our presenters did send these pre-recorded videos, which um, were stored on yet another software platform, Vimeo. But that all—all all of this was. Uh, consolidated within Zoom, uh, sorry, within Hoover with the uh, goal of trying to have an integrated sort of virtual space where people could attend live program sessions, you know, hear the presentations and engage in various types of other um, well, engage in other types of virtual interaction. Uh, we uh, so that uh, basically worked. I'll let you know Jessica talk about how they went about planning, and I could you know come back to some of the pluses and minuses of what our experience was in a minute.
1: Yeah, thanks. That's a great segue. Jessica, would you kind of characterize for us the experience of AFS and it's it's kind of scrambling to, to make the conference happen under less than ideal circumstances? <laughs> sure.
2: Um, and, and it you know, this whole last year has felt like a scramble for everybody. And I think, um, you know, when March uh, hit, you know, and we, it was clear that we were going to be in this pandemic for a while as we're all trying to think of ways of, of shifting our regular business, our meetings, You know, one of the one of the complications within all of this is that the decision points, the the timing of decisions also have to fall in line with the with these complex, you know, hotel contract renegotiations. And that's what we were trying to achieve in the spring also. Um, And, you know, at the same time, um, many of our colleagues, uh, other executive directors of learned societies through ACLS, um, in constant communication as we were all trying to learn together, like how do we even pull these things off? what are the possibilities? what are you know what does the fall look like? Um, and you know i'm I'm quite lucky to have Steve down the hallway when we are in in person. Um, and so you know talking with Steve about what their plans are as as we all try to figure this out, I think the challenge, for us, uh we had planned to meet in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And we were really eager to meet in Tulsa, Oklahoma because it was the centennial um, of the Tulsa race massacre. And we had planned um working with Oklahoma Humanities, uh a series of programs, workshops uh connecting to that particular um uh tragedy and the and the histories around that. Working with teachers on how to incorporate folk life, folklore, ethnography, working with community in their classrooms. So there was a, a classroom component, and we helped, we worked with um, the organization Local Learning and their director, Lisa Ratchie. Uh, to uh, to help fund some of those workshops, so all of these things that we were planning we were really eager to see come to fruition, even as things were falling apart in the spring um, and while we're renegotiating our contract and so for us, it was very clear that we would not be able to meet you know for a regular meeting in 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 Oklahoma. But we also thought that maybe we would be able to have a very small meeting. Um, And so we were planning, thankfully, with with um, the successful renegotiation of our contract to be able to meet and 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 have as big a meeting as we possibly could. And as time went on, it became clear that that was not going to be possible at all. So um, we were really lucky to have a hotel that. let us really basically let us out of our contract and we we re-signed for 2022 so we will return to Tulsa Oklahoma we're excited about about being able to do that I think um for for us uh, you know managing expectations and the financial obligations of our organization has to take priority and and it was it was very clear that we were all on really thin ice with, with these meeting contracts. A lot of our colleagues, um, you know, the organization's lost a lot of money in, in hotel contract penalties this past year. And it's been a really difficult thing to watch. And, uh, you know, I don't know the ins and outs of, of how SEM has managed that, but, but AFS has been okay um, through, through the crisis. But then, you know, as the board and and staff were working together on figuring out what to do in the fall. Um, as time went on, it became very clear that uh, having personal connections in these in these meetings was going to be very important. And so for us, you know, and and I think by October there might have been a little bit of Zoom weariness. Now, you know, even several months after after that. Um, I think we we have to think about how to um use the virtual space um as a tool as a way to have access, but also um the challenge is how to how to um create this connection um between between and among members uh, and that is a big challenge,
1: yeah, you know Jessica, you point out something that most members of these societies often um have very little awareness of, and that is these long term, several years out uh, contracts that you make with hotels and with cities and with organizations, you make a commitment, you know, years in advance. And then when something like this comes along, you are in um, real difficulty trying to negotiate Uh, changing those contracts and and the other thing is i think afs did a great job in saying you know we can't come this year but how about if we come back in two years so that we don't miss out on that tulsa experience that i think folklorists myself included were really excited to uh uh, to take part in so you've kind of made the best of a difficult situation without having to fall apart in terms of the financial constraints of these um Hotel contracts it's, it's, it speaks really well to the success of the society in navigating these issues. Now, how would you kind of assess how this, how the meeting went in its online form this year, Jessica?
2: You know, I would say it was our first time doing it, and and it was a smashing success for being the first time. You know, I think all of us kind of came through, uh, and I attended SEM as well, and so all of us came through these meetings, and at the end of it, uh, what we were hearing was that was way better than I imagined it would be. because, you know, I think at the, even ourselves, you know, we, we have these doubts that we can pull these things off. Um, we were very careful um, about uh, trying to plan things um, cautiously and appropriately for the kinds of conversations that we wanted to have. Um, we, were, uh, we, we had a smaller meeting than planned. You know, our, our um, proposal submission deadlines were falling during the beginning of the pandemic. And and so we uh, offered folks the, um, the option later to defer their presentations by a year or to present virtually. A lot of people chose to defer because they just didn't know what these virtual meetings would be like. Um, so our meeting was smaller, but I think that was, it really worked out for the best because it allowed us... To focus on connections and, and and important conversations, and so you know we have many of us, all of us at this point have lost um, family, colleagues, friends to COVID, and we wanted to make sure that we didn't lose that in this in this moment, and we were also uh, several months in into. Um, really the, the re- revived Black Lives Matter movement in, in a big strong way and really tackling those issues of systemic racism um, in our fields, in our organizations was really important. So for us, the virtual meeting gave us the opportunity to have a lot of regular kinds of conference sessions that we normally have, but also to plan these plenaries that were big conversations about the the ideas that we're all facing, um, I think what we were able to do was to to carve out um really what felt like spaces for dialogue um, in a way that we even surprised ourselves the the kinds of dialogue that that was happening at our at our meeting and and I think that um what worked well was uh, setting that tone from the very beginning um with our opening ceremony being far more ceremonial than we've ever really done before and to just really mark the moment and um, the lament that we've lost folks the lament of of uh you know, the anti-racism work that every, you know, we're all, you know, committed to, but, but also, you know, every, a lot of our colleagues are tired. And, and I know that the same thing happened with SEM. I was in, in that opening ceremony too, and Steve can talk more about that if it, you know, um, but it was just moving and, and, and to feel like you're coming together um, to mark uh, really compounding crises, set the tone for What for us was a successful meeting because of that. But I think it took far more deliberate planning than we normally put into an annual conference, which is often the moving around of of a lot of proposals that we receive and making sense of what we get in terms of what our members want to present and talk about Um, our board and our uh, we had a virtual meeting task force. We're really rethinking like, okay, what is it that the society has to talk about in this conference and how do we plan accordingly? Um, I think that is what made it uh, successful. Um, the platform, you know, worked just fine. Um, I think, you know, surprised us all. Um, we were we were all sort of, uh, Steve can relate, um, you know, running these huge virtual meetings. Um, it it feels both really connected and really isolating um and we feel like you know you're at the you know at the at the mothership uh of of the enterprise and just making all of these bits work it's really odd as a folklorist who's so used to like being connected to people um to be connected you know um on the on the back the admin side of a of a virtual meeting but um it it worked
1: you know, I attended both meetings and I, I feel the same way in that while I was isolated and sequestered at home or in my office, I was still able to connect with friends and colleagues in ways that I hadn't anticipated. Um, and even though we were missing the kind of hotel experience, I was still really quite pleased by the ways in which I could connect with people and, and go to the plenary sessions and such. Steve, what was your thoughts on SEM and how it, how it all ended up going? Uh, Like Jessica,
0: we got really positive response, Uh, but also like Jessica, we didn't know what was going to happen, you know, going into it. I think uh, she raised many good points, one of which is this huge amount of work to put uh, a virtual conference together. And there's also expense involved. Uh, So, you know, and all of us were doing it for the first time. uh, So luckily we had a great team and we were able to pull it off. And I'm also glad that um, Jessica and and you both, Dave, uh, raised the whole issue of hotel contracts, uh, because that was also a major part of our, you know, Negotiations and discussions, trying to uh, adjust to the to the realities of last year. We also were fortunately able to move our um, hotel contract in Ottawa down the road. So we'll, we are going to be going back to Ottawa. We will be going to Ottawa in 2023. And um, that's uh, very important for us because, again, like I said, uh, we haven't been in Canada a long time. We have a lot of members of the society who are based in Canada. Um, our local arrangements committee had much planned for us, so we're really looking forward to going back. But we, um, in producing this virtual meeting, we tried to include as much uh, of the planned uh, Canadian programming as possible. So as uh, um, Jessica mentioned, you know, we had an opening ceremony that uh, uh, featured uh, Indigenous Canadian leaders and various other people. We, um, our local arrangements committee had recruited a lot of uh, musical ensembles who were to perform for us in Ottawa, instead recordings which we had available throughout the conference. And, as Jessica also brought up, you know, SEM, like AFS, is in the middle of a lot of very serious discussions about racism and colonialism, equity inclusion, indigenous rights, environmental issues. All of that uh, is is very um, much at at the center of of what we're thinking about these days. So we did create extra forums uh, and opportunities for discussions about those and other issues um, that happen uh, virtually. So I, um, in terms of the overall experience. Uh, I would say that the positive aspects were greater accessibility, broadly defined. Uh, people from all over the world uh, were able to participate more easily than it would be the case with an on-site uh, meeting. Obviously, those with different financial means or employment status were able to participate uh, more easily. People with different physical abilities were able to, uh, to attend. Um, so, all of that was really positive. So, in terms of attendance, we had our best attended annual meeting ever, over 1,100 attendees. You always hear at an on-site meeting, people say, well, I missed such and such presentation. You know, there's so many concurrent sessions. I can't see everything I want to see. Well, this helped a a bit with that because you could go at any time for two months and look at presentations that that you might have missed. But I think one of the things that people liked the most was just the variety of opportunities for virtual interaction there is a chat feature within our main platform as again we use this uh, company called hoova there's another chat feature as we all know within zoom people use those extensively and they thought it they thought it added a lot to the whole you know scholarly exchange and experience they you know a lot more voices you know could be heard through through these media Uh, so that was great there was also within our platform opportunities for different types of virtual uh, messaging virtual meetups virtual get-togethers with colleagues. We also had, uh, you know, a virtual presence from our ex- exhibitors, university presses. People really liked that variety of ways of connecting. Uh, uh, and then finally, uh, and one of the most important was a lark footprint, obviously, and not a non-existent carbon footprint. The internet obviously, you know, does create carbon, but we, you know, one of our long-term goals as a society is, is to address and, and you know, the environmental impact of our on-site annual meetings. So that was all real positive. I'll mention a few um, disadvantages or challenges. Uh, some individuals with um, either visual or hearing impairments experience some problems with our software. We tried to deal with that in advance, weren't 100% successful. So that's an area we need to continue to work on. There are also some technical challenges. I mean, we ran a lot of sessions over 10 days. You know, people are were participating from their home computers, so you know, uh, technical uh, problems did occur from time to time, as they do with an on-site meeting. Uh, Uh, Time zone for us was another issue. Again, we have presenters and attendees from all over the world. So our program chair, program committee tried to address that to a degree, but if you think about time zones in a a conference, you you, you can't solve that one uh, very easily. Uh, The absence of co-present face-to-face interaction, both in the program sessions themselves and in in informal settings, I think a lot of people, not everybody, but I think a lot of people feel that does diminish the overall conference experience. So you gain something f- uh, from the from technology by types of virtual interaction that, that you wouldn't have otherwise, but there's something about being together in a room, you know, uh, whether it's for a formal session or informal get together, that is, um, it's, you can't quite... Reproduce that online. The final downside for us was—we've and we've sort of already touched on this. Wherever we go, you know, we try to connect with local musicians, local clubs, local venues, and, and support local music scenes. So, you know, we had the—we tried to keep that going a bit with our um, virtual concerts by Canadian ensembles, but you know, that was a bit of a, of a loss, as was just the ability to connect with local university programs, museums, and so forth. Um, But again, you know, there was really strong participation Uh, on the balance. I think people really um, liked uh, being part of a virtual meeting, and we all learned that it's possible to do this.
1: You know, one of the things I would add to that is throughout both of these meetings, I noticed a palpable willingness of participants to be accommodating to these challenges. It's like we all kind of held each other in a warm embrace and said, you know, this is not ideal, so let's just get through this the best we can. Um, And that was one of the reasons why I felt that both meetings were such a success in that we were so happy just to have something. Now, who knows if that kind of um accommodation will continue in the future, but I did think that in this particular moment it spoke very well for these societies and, and their annual meetings. Jessica, what would you say the the kind of the lessons you learned from this past year would be?
2: Well, one of the biggest lessons that I think we learned is we can do this. Um we can uh we, we can we have to as academic societies think about different ways of connecting with our members and with the world i think the the level of access that meeting virtually brings is really important and so i think one of the biggest takeaways that that i have is that there are possibilities to rethink a lot a lot of what we're doing in ways that um, really create more opportunities for people to connect, to share, to grow professionally, and it's kind of our charge to do that now. You know, we've ripped off the band-aid of virtual meetings, and now uh, the expectation I think is going to be there to to be able to offer some kind of virtual connection in the future. Also for us, you know, we we learned that our members are incredibly generous and compassionate and supportive of each other. So we were able to, through uh, donations from members who, uh, you know, are not in a financial bind right now. A, you know, extend scholarships um, for membership, for registration, to uh, members who are in financial bond this year. And for us, um, seeing that it didn't uh, impact our bottom line negatively, we were still able to achieve what we wanted to um, uh, while also reducing costs for a lot of people. It, 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 we learned that. Um and so the business model is may shift a little bit for how we how we run our organizations um for our meeting, we had a pay what you can registration rate and um, what we saw was that it was used, it was not abused and uh but but it was also uh really appreciated by by people um uh who really needed that and and i think we're going to see a lot of that this year you know this the financial ramifications of um of of the pandemic and and of just decreasing budgets uh, throughout a lot of our fields is going to cause us to to rethink uh, how we are supporting our members. Um, so we're thinking creatively um, within a, you know, within our capacity to do that right now. Um, how how do we keep this engagement going? How do we keep the access? Um, how do we create new um, programs and initiatives that may, uh, you know, drive our organizations in in, in interesting and new ways? Um, all to the end goal of um, of 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 not just weathering the the storm of the pandemic, but emerging stronger. Um, uh, and and so that's I, I would say that's one of one of the biggest takeaways that I've had this year.
1: I really like the way you framed that. I think we all began the process trying to weather the storm, and then came out the other side with really good ideas about how we could make the society better. Steve, what do you think all of this means for the future of SEM? Both exactly right, meeting because of
0: the realities of the pandemic. But now we're thinking about what does the future mean and what will a scholarly society be in the future? So um, we... uh, well, just in terms of nuts and bolts, we have uh, hotel contracts in place uh, now for the next three years. Uh, Atlanta uh, for this coming fall, 2021. Then uh, New Orleans uh, for 2022, where we're going to be meeting with the American Musicological Society and Society for Music Theory in a joint meeting. And then as I've mentioned, we're going back to Ottawa in 2023. So uh, one of the things we're thinking about now is uh, we want to have these on-site meetings. Where, you know, we're really hoping Um, that Atlanta will work out because again, we have a local arrangements committee there that's done all sorts of work to uh, involve um, historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs, as well as a variety of people involved in the music scene there with an emphasis on African diaspora music making. And so a lot of the conversations that had started this fall, we want to expand in Atlanta in that setting um but of course we also now that we've seen how you know virtual conferencing can work we and and you know and how that allows us to include so many more people in our signature event the annual meeting you know we're looking at you know what types of virtual components can we have in conjunction with on-site meetings but also you know looking past um our last on-site meeting past 2023, Uh, You know, there seems to be, uh, this all has to be discussed within, you know, SEM as an organization with the board, but there seems to be interest in, you know, another virtual only meeting uh, at some point. Uh, So that's something thing we'll be looking at. People are asking a lot of questions and wondering about, so-called hybrid formats where, you know, there can be both an on-site and a virtual component. Um, I think there are possibilities there. Uh, it, it would work best if it's planned in advance. In other words, you, you work with a hotel or other institution with that as the concept moving forward rather than trying to graft you know, virtual onto an existing hotel contract. It, it, so uh, for example, I think a, a hybrid would work well in a university setting where just the way the economics of, a, of contracting works is different than the big hotels. And of course, universities have fantastic internet um, resources. So, you know, that's another thing we're gonna be talking about a lot. So the bottom line is yes, virtual conferencing provides all sorts of opportunities for reinventing a scholarly society, including uh, more people in conversations, and uh, you know, trying to figure out how to take advantage of that without you know losing um, on-site meetings. Uh, because I think uh, we still don't quite we we still don't know you know what the consequences would be. Say of having, let's say you had no on-site meetings, no co-present you know, face-to-face interaction, we don't, we don't really know what the consequences of that would be for a scholarly organization. Uh, that's an unknown. I mean, we all are beginning to learn, uh, uh, you know what happens in terms of higher education, classroom education. You know, without being in a classroom, we'll have to learn more about you know the role of and, and importance of on-site, face-to-face, co-present interaction, and how to integrate that with the opportunities that virtual conferencing offer.
1: Right, and as we were talking previously about access, you know, one of the reasons why Canada was such a, a valuable place for us to go was it provided access to scholars from countries who could not get access to the United States because of uh, federal mm-hmm. policies. So Canada provided really interesting opportunities for scholars from Iran, for example. Mm-hmm. If in a virtual environment, we can keep that kind of access. And if you play with the synchronous, asynchronous aspect of it, you could even build in translational work for papers that are presented ahead of time. You could even build in some ways of engagement for International scholars for whom English is not their native language. It seems like the opportunities are, are extraordinary. And then when you couple that with the the very important need of addressing the carbon footprint of of these annual meetings, it seems to me like this would would be an excellent supplement. And you know, and the other thing that that has I've heard people talking about is is the way that virtual meetings could enhance and perhaps even bolster the regional um, sections of SEM and AFS. So the regional meetings, MIDSEM for example, MAXSEM, they could take place virtually and that would make them far more affordable and attractive to uh, junior scholars for whom those meetings are most beneficial.
0: Absolutely, just to, to jump in on on that point, Dave. Uh, you know, SEM has ten regional chapters across North well, U.S. and Canada, and uh, they were they were the first uh, to, to, to go virtual. So yes, there are many opportunities for them. Uh, we're also talking about, and this is very preliminary. The boards, only, the SEM boards, only had you know, some initial conversations about this, but we're thinking about the idea of a virtual chapter. Uh, th- that could be, you know, not based anywhere physically, but that would allow, you know, during, you know, the winter or spring. We always have our main annual meeting in the fall. So, in terms of something else happening in, in the winter or spring, there could be a virtual meeting of, of some scale that could involve uh, people from uh, various. You know, parts of the world, and this this gets into also a larger issue for us. About a quarter of our members live in countries outside of the U.S. There's always been some questions. Well, you know, why don't we have chapters in other you know in other parts of the world? And that gets into a long discussion about you know the role of the Society for Ethnomusicology in conjunction with our colleagues at the International Council for Traditional Music and all sorts of big issues relating to. The United States and colonialism etc but the bottom line is if we could have some other type of virtual space that again would allow more people to be involved on a regular basis where we could as you were pointing out Dave uh, you know work with uh, language and translations and so forth I think that provides an, an excellent opportunity for the society
1: Imagine if the papers presented that were submitted ahead of time could have subtitles in various languages. That would be an extraordinary gesture um, to internationalize and perhaps even decolonize these society meetings for scholars in soft money countries in the global south. Now, Jessica, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how the virtual experience will be aspects of it maintained in future iterations of the American Folklore Society annual meetings.
2: Well, um, by the time this podcast is edited and and, um, published, we will have announced that we will do something virtual this year also. Um, We will have some kind of virtual component. How that is, takes shape is still remains to be to be seen, and and we'll have to work on planning that this spring. But we know that there are members who want to engage virtually, and certainly this year is going to be a tough year for travel. We also know that there are uh, ways that throughout the year, um, having virtual. Salons, webinars, discussions, meetings is a way to keep people keep people engaged. And so we will we're planning a series of, of, of virtual events um, that will start this spring. Um, we're planning with our local committee um, for our twenty twenty one meeting, which is uh, scheduled for Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So you know we're we're working now to present some of the uh, programs that. May or may not be um, possible to um, to safely uh, produce and, and present in Harrisburg. We're planning to do some of those virtual, so that the so that the the especially the artists, the traditional artists that we're working with, um, are engaging with our members and our organization in ways that. Um, makes sense for them and uh, uh you know and uh, there's also um, a lot of equity to be found within that and and so we're excited about those kinds of programs um but i think also like as we're thinking about the future having some kind of virtual um meeting presence as a you know regularly attached to our annual meeting um i think is something that people would r- really want to see um the expectation isn't necessarily that it would be hybrid and the costs of hybrid true hybrid meetings could, could be quite expensive. As Steve was mentioning, um, earlier, like it would, you know, within the current structure of working often with convention centers or hotels, um, uh, technology costs can, can really go way high. Um, when, when we're working on like live streaming, everything we're doing, um, but as we're thinking about the future, I think there is the opportunity to connect what we're, what we're doing on the ground with um, with people all, all over who may not be able to get to our meeting. And that's an exciting thing to think about um, in terms of... Connecting, um, you know, creating that access um, without the without the carbon footprint, without the the cost burden on on folks, um, and so we are eager to explore that. And so I think for us. Um, You know, and Steve would probably agree, what we saw in the fall with our, you know, our successful first attempts at a virtual meeting um, aren't going to be the way we do it all the time. I think we're going to have to try some things and see what works. But meeting virtually, I think, is something that we're going to see a lot of um, in the future.
1: You know, I didn't even think about the prohibitive costs of live streaming technology in a conference center environment, where a cheese plate can run several hundred dollars, and uh, a big screen TV can run even more. I hadn't even considered that. And you know, Steve brought up doing it on college campuses as, as might be a better option because then you have greater infrastructure for doing those kinds of things. You know, I'm wondering if does this mean that. The conferences will get bigger by getting smaller. And what I mean by that is the kind of face to face component becomes much smaller, but the actual number of attendees gets much bigger as we kind of play with this, this model of, of virtual and face to face interactions. Is that a way in which the society can increase its access? But in the, in, in the, in the doing of that, it actually becomes a much smaller face to face meeting. Steve, what do you think?
0: That's one option. You know, there there are different ways of um, combining on-site and online moving forward. Some of the, uh, the options we've been discussing is you could have an on meeting, alternating with a fully online meeting, you know, or or some patterning that way, or what you were just suggesting, you you would have hybrid meetings where, yes, you know, maybe the on-site participation would be less, much larger. So, you know, it could be, it could be Either or or some combination moving forward. I think as I think Jessica's point a minute ago was was really true. We all pulled off successful meetings this fall, but that doesn't mean it's always gonna be just like that. We're gonna keep on learning more and experimenting. Yeah, I mean for us, we are dealing with and all academic societies are dealing with big challenges right now. Uh, you know, there's it's, there's less uh, financial resources in higher education in general. Less support for the arts and humanities in particular. There are fewer job opportunities in, within, for, you know, teaching in universities. Uh, there's you know, decreasing enrollments in a lot of schools. So all of that poses, you know, um, just the economics of that all poses, a, you know, a real challenge for what it means to actually run an, an academic society. Meanwhile, we're all, as we've been talking about, you know, we're all very. very Very uh, much focused on issues of equity and inclusion. We have we're trying to serve all of our members. We want to hear from everyone all voices. We want everybody to feel part of these organizations and and know that their voice is being heard. And then the other one is, as we've also been talking about, is the carbon footprint. You know, we've got to address with this, this idea of, you know, a thousand people, you know, flying to a place every year uh, has a huge um, environmental impact. So if you take, you know, those sort of major structural issues that every scholarly society is dealing with moving forward, virtual conferencing it gives us a tool to to address all of those major concerns. How that you know actually gets combined with um, you know some sort of on-site co-present meeting as a continued element of of what a scholarly society is. I think that is where you know the ex- experimentation will
1: continue. Jessica, what are your final thoughts?
2: Never final. Um, it feels, <laughs> you know. I think we're in in changing terrain, and I think um, it is it is our jobs as as leaders of our um, our professional organizations to navigate the path in in ways that are as supportive of our members as, as possible, but also, you know, being good stewards of the resources that we have and finding the opportunities with, within all of that. And I think that one, you know, one thing I've I've seen, you know, in in the last almost year now that that we've been in this in this pandemic is that now the access to each other it, it seems to be you know so much greater and so throughout my day I'm sure you experience this I'm sure Steve experiences this um, you may be in a meeting in New York in the morning um, with a student you know at lunchtime and uh, uh, with colleagues in the Middle East you know uh, at some point during the day and and I I I think um, we're all really tired from that because I think this sort of like going through the wormhole from meeting to meeting to meeting is uh, psychologically just <laughs> exhausting. But it also shows us that there is this access that now we we can really get together to solve some of the big problems we've all been like thinking through a, a, you know, a much slower pace a couple of years ago. And so I think about that, and and it it is exciting to think about how we can think about who is part of our organizations and how are we reaching them. Um, I think this past year has given us the opportunity, like Steve was Steve was talking about, a lot of these, um, you know, the big issues in our fields, funding and access, and and pu- the publishing world. Um, are, are large challenges that we've all got to really navigate carefully. Um, but the exciting thing in that is that, you know, we're having conversations about access to scholarship in ways that are not just about open access, but it's about who gets to be the scholar? Um, who are we crediting? Uh, for as being the expert, and uh, so it's 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 wonderful to be in all of these conversations in this moment because I think it's it's our jobs then to continue kind of pushing those boundaries in ways that open our organizations up to all of the ideas um, uh, around the world.
1: That's really well said. Um if we've learned anything over this past year and a half, that both of these societies are in excellent hands. And I'd like to thank you both so much for all of the work you put into making sure that these meetings went off without a hitch and that our societies remained connected even under truly traumatic circumstances. I'd also love to thank you for coming on Soundlore today. It's been a real pleasure both to see you and to talk to you, and I certainly look forward to the day when we can safely hang out like we once did in the halls of the COB here at Bloomington. With that, I'm gonna say goodbye to you both. And thank you once again for being on this week's edition of SoundLore. SoundLore is an official production of the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University. Produced by David McDonald and Amanda Luke. Music by Pagliacci and some other clowns. Engineered by Amanda Luke. Questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes? Leave us a message at 812-855-0396. If you haven't already, please subscribe to SoundLore on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded.